Hello, this is a presentation of The Unlikely, a book by Joe DeLeone. It was mid-morning in the port city by the time the group left from the gates of Vero City Mance. They were going sailing out to a completely uninhabited island of the Delta in Vero's modest yacht, and Vero at least was quite looking forward to the trip. In tow, he had his daughters, Aristophal, the tutor who lived with them, who was sure to make some sort of lesson out of the trip, the household guard and their male coys, and Jane's boyfriend, Michael, a tall boy with neatly combed hair and a solemn expression which he wore most of the time. Vera had had Jane extend the invitation to him from Vera personally. He had been over for dinner several times, and Vera found he quite liked the boy and didn't take too much effort to hide his affection. The boy had sharp crimson eyes and thick black eyebrows with a characteristic reddish black hair to go with it, and in his movements there was an inner beauty, a quiet grace, which made Pharaoh gravitate towards him further. It didn't matter much if he cared for the boy or not. One day, the two would be married, whether he had something to say about it or not. The boy loved Jane fiercely, and she loved him back, and this was quite a great relief to Pharaoh, who had always understood his dot his eldest daughter's troubles fitting into her new home. When his daughter made false pretenses to meet him out, Pharaoh didn't question her. He liked the boy and he was glad his daughter had made a lasting relationship amidst the chaos and drama which held the city in an iron grasp. His twin daughters were dressed up for the trip through the city, though they didn't seem as excited. They were still under the tutelage of Aristophel, who took his job incredibly seriously, and they would be required to find eight different books and classify each of them without the help of the books they had been studying from the last week. They were both very competitive with each other, and the two of them always treated Aristophel's lessons and tests as a battleground in which they could decide who between them was the better twin. A harmless game most of the time, though on occasion they were known to be screaming fights between the two, especially if one wore the other's clothing without permission, which, much to Vero's chagrin, was quite a common occurrence. Two of the four of Vero's household guards accompanied them, Jeff and Stephen, two common-born men who were diligent and honest and who had yet to draw their swords in defense in the ten years that Vero had lived in the city. He didn't see why it wouldn't be the same today. They made their way through the flowing streets, which were quite active under the daily blanket of fog which covered the city in its entirety. They came out from a narrow stone path between two rows of shops, and the port opened before them, a jungle of masts, ropes, ships, and men, which was slightly obscured by the quickly moving fog. Pharaoh's ship was docked in the harbor, which was created by a headland which shielded the deep bay from the ocean and enabled the rich trade which had flowed through the port for nearly a millennia. They hailed a small boat which ferried them out to the yacht. They passed the row of massive warships with their large iron rams and large cogs which sailed out to the far-off points of Ambia and Zia where they brought spices and other luxuries to the empire. Pharaoh's boat was very modest in comparison, though it was all he needed, and he quite liked the look of it. He had learned to sail when he was brought from his bastardy into the Galandian court at the age of eight, and he had gained a reputation at an early age for going out alone on a small, stale boat and tooling up and down the coast, and he had nearly found himself drowned a handful of times, the thought of which still brought shivers up his spine. The boat, however, would be manned by four men, and the Glandian coast made the radish one seem like something of paradise. It was gentle, and the tides and winds were as predictable as clockwork. 
Michael had never been aboard the boat before, though he was sure-footed and he clambered aboard the modest deck. He had been sailing his whole life. He was already rated an able seaman by the British Navy. He was the son of an admiral, and he had spent years as a midshipman on Navy ships, though he made no face of content at the modest boat, and he followed Pharaoh's commands eagerly as they got the ship ready to sail. Pharaoh did really like the boy. They were soon headed out of the harbor. They passed a multitude of dock ships until they passed the massive engineering feat which had been completed 200 years prior. A massive stone wall had been built to protect the port on top of a shallow part of the bay where an island lay just underwater, and it had one opening at a massive portcullis which was wide enough when it was open to let 20 men of war pass through abreast. They passed underneath the portcullis and out onto the slightly rougher water of the delta where they harnessed the predictable onshore breeze and used it to steer out into the open ocean. Their target was yet to be visible through the fog, though Vera had become a good pilot in the bay, and he steered the ship without any navigational help until a dark mass got slowly larger and larger, and finally they dropped anchor, and the small dinghy was let down and Vera steered the boat toward the forested coast. Pharaoh had off, headed off alone into the undergrowth, which rose to shield the foggy sky from his view. The twins were looking for bugs around the shore with one of the guards watching them, and Jane and Michael had moved farther up the shore until they were out of view of the rest of the party. But the other man followed them, but stayed far enough away to give them privacy. Pharaoh took in a deep breath of the cold air as he paused before a stream that he had visited before. He had visited this island many times on his own, and the silence and stillness broken only by the fog moving through the trees were a welcome respite from the non-stop hustle and bustle of the city. He followed the stream, walking on the dark mud of the bank until it came to a place where the water had pooled in a flat area, and he sat down on the bank with a sigh. He felt old, and his thoughts began to wander until he found himself thinking of a day long ago. He was sixteen, and he was walking through a low wood with a girl who was dressed in a beautiful gown with a simple silver ring through her hair, the crown of the princess. He was dressed finely as well in a blue and white doublet with his hair combed neatly. The two of them had walked away from a larger group which had a picnic still in progress, which had several dozen servants around a regiment of the household guard and the girl next to him two sisters and their friends the two of them had recently developed feelings for each other and as they walked and talked there was a clear electricity between them she walked very close to vero much closer than would be proper of a lady in her place and their arms brushed against each other every so often they were discussing how Vera's semester at school had gone and he was back for winter break and she eagerly followed along she would not leave the castle for her education, and she became bored of the courtly life which prevented the freedom which she might have enjoyed otherwise. They were entering into a very thickly wooded part of the forest, and they had to move to the bank of the stream to find a path through. The water flowed quickly over a rocky descent, and the sound of running water filled the cold, wintry air. She motioned Avero to sit down suddenly in a place cleverly where no one can see them unless they were directly on the bank in front of them. Vera was nervous. He had picked up on her affections, but always understood that in his place in court he could never have made good on them. But here he was, and she was leaning on him practically. With all the courage of the world, he leaned in and the two kissed. It was brief. They quickly got back up and continued their walk up the bank as if nothing had happened. But Vero could barely contain his smile, and she could barely contain hers. He came back to where he was, sitting on the banks of the pond.
haunt, and a deep feeling of melancholy came over him. The memories of their time together haunted him. He got himself up after a while and began a slow walk through the forest to get back to the shore. He walked back from his telescope store, which he leased from a man who owned the large rectangular building with tenants on the floors above. The next day, after closing up, the sun had fallen behind the horizon, though, and the city seemed like a million torches lit the fading darkness. Pharaoh had the occasional view of the river, and on this far bank, the small, unwalled, the smaller, unwalled city. There were only a few ships now, and their sails were full from the cool breeze which blew in from the ocean. Pharaoh lived in a nice area, not too far from the top of the hill, and an easy walking distance from the shop. He came through a small iron door past the large stone wall, which had iron spikes sticking outward into the luscious courtyard, green with well-manicured plants with a stone walkway, and led to both wings of the house in the front, which had a large rectangular main building and two wings, which encompassed the courtyard, all built out of fine mason stone, which gave it the appearance that it had been simply cut out of a large block. He opened the door to the large wing, and he entered an incredibly large sitting room, which was all very ordered. The maid came every day to keep the house up, and it had lavish carpets and couches and chairs with cushions of different colors. There was green and satin and blue and purple. Pharaoh had come to the city after during his travels in Anvia as an exile, where he had discovered a tomb full of gold on an archaeology expedition, which the group he was with had selfishly looted, and he had befriended a raidish senator who had been there for the discovery. Archibald Steeple was the man, and they had become such immediate friends that he had arranged for his immigration personally. He heard noise coming from the library, and he walked across the large sitting room and turned into the eastern wing of the house which the library was located in. There he found his twin daughters sitting at a table diligently working silently while Aristophel sat there with his arms crossed. Ah, oh, Mr. Vero, he had a very correct way of talking. How nice it is to see you. Good to see you, too, he said, and he nodded at his daughters. A little quiz, I take it. Yes, indeed, said Aristotle. They are writing a paper on the 400 years' war. Time's almost up, he motioned at his hourglass, which had ever less and less sand coming in. All right, time, he said finally. All right, go ahead, Lexi. The 400 years' war began when King... Rovlier suddenly died, and his son, King Orient, believed that the, that the Radish were responsible, leading to the seizing of Radish ships and property across the kingdom. A senator was found, and him and his family were held hostage. In response, in response the Radish Senate declared a full-on war with them and began preparing for an overland invasion while calling all of their sea power to the home islands. The kingdom of Lascaux could not wait to be attacked, however, and they launched a hastily put-together invasion force in hopes of stalling for time to build up their navy by distracting the Radish resources to their home islands. The invasion was an epic failure, however. The Radish navy squarely destroyed their opponent in a series of battles, which is to this day the largest naval tragedy in the history of the kingdom. The attempted raidish landing disembarked half a year later, and it landed successfully in the kingdom, and was able to cut its way inland and form a safe area for further landings. Several large forts were constructed in the coming years, and a long stalemate was beginning with the raidish unable to push further into the countryside, and the kingdom unable to blockade the force or sail it as the forts were built on the coast and resupplyable by sea. The war dragged on this way for the remainder of the 200 years. The second 200 years began just the same as the first. 
until King Matthew came into power at 23 and was intent on taking them off at of the main continent once and for all. A fierce campaign began with massive siege engines able to throw stones as heavy as a ship, and two of the fortresses which had been continuously built upon over the ages were taking in what turned out to be fierce fighting. The third castle, the largest and most well garrisoned, did not fall, however, though there was a massive siege conducted. Ships coming into the port would have had to dodge dozens of trebuchets hurtling stones into the bay, Though through the guile of the British captains, they were saved from starvation and able to hold out until a force could be landed to break the siege. Such a force did come, led by the Senator Marcus Tolmer himself, and the siege was caught off guard and smashed, and the king, who was visiting the works, was killed. In the wave of surprise, the two other forts were recaptured, and the stalemate which had locked them before once and for all took over and held between the two forces. Three hundred and twelve years into the war, the kingdom of Glasgow went to war with the tiny neighboring kingdom of Napoli, which had become recently allied to the British Republic. The British sent a large invasion force, but by the time they got there, the small kingdom had already been taken, and the king had fled somewhere into hiding. The landing commenced, however, at twelve points, and there they linked up with the king, who rallied what remnants of the forces he could to do battle with the Glasgow. A fierce campaign began, and though there were temporary gains and the capital city was retaken, the king receded upon his throne. The fierce counterattack forced a mass retreat, which left the king heading to the Raiders Republic to begin his life as an exile. Three failed counterattacks were launched, all which met with failure and tremendous losses on the Raiders side, and on the third attempt the king was killed. Heavily indebted after the 400 years of fighting, the Raiders finally negotiated a treaty that allowed the Kingdom of Glasgow to buy back each of the forts at extravagant rates in exchange for peace. The kingdom, whose colonies possessed the richest solar mine in all the world, were happy to oblige, and the war ended with payments and a tentative betwixt between the two nations that last to this very day. Very good, said Aristophel, and Vera nodded. Keep studying, he said, and he turned and walked upstairs.